All right, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? Hey. Hey, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new, welcome. Uh, I hope you find this to be a place where um, God's truth is lifted, where we together uh, admit that we have a lot to learn, where we surrender more so God can change us more. And uh, we're starting a new series today. Uh, I know, I know. This one, this one's only going to be about six weeks, I think, so that's different. We just finished a series, um, 35 weeks on the Holy Spirit, everything you ever needed to know or wanted to know about Him and our relationship with Him. And it, and it dawned on me that you can know all about the Holy Spirit. You could spend 35 weeks studying the gifts and everything else, but if you don't know how to communicate with Him, then you'll never develop a relationship. One of the things that sort of hit me as I was praying about this was that, you know, it's very hard to have a relationship with somebody that you don't talk to. It's very hard to have a relationship with somebody that you just can't communicate with. Uh, it's hard to have a relationship with somebody who you refuse to communicate with. In fact, if you look at relationships that break down, it's always communication that fails first. As long as people can keep talking and keep connecting, then the relationship has some form of life and the ability to be restored. It's when ties are cut, when we stop communicating, that we have struggles. Now, if you look at any marriage, I promise you, if, it's, if people have been married a long time and you say, well, that's a great marriage, they have great communication. It's that simple, right? Because there are things in every marriage, every relationship, where if you can't communicate, you're in serious trouble, and the disciples followed Jesus around for several years. And there's a moment in the Bible that I find fascinating where they followed Jesus. They saw him calm storms. They saw him raise people from the dead. They saw him heal lepers. They saw him do incredible things that only God could do. But what they asked was teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. That, that's odd to me because they're Jewish. They grew up in the synagogue. They've been praying since before they could almost walk. They memorized prayers. There were prayers for all the holy days. I mean, they, they, they pray, everybody prayed. It was part of their natural day. And yet they looked at Jesus and they said, teach us how to do that. Because what you're doing is not what we're doing. You see, when you pray, you actually connect. When you pray, there's communication happening. Something's happening between you and the Father. There's this relationship you have. That's what we want to know. Teach us how to do that. We too want to learn how to pray like that. Like every relationship has great communication. If we're going to have a connection with the Holy Spirit, we've got to be able to connect. We've got to be able to communicate. Now, we have a problem in much of our communication with the Holy Spirit. The problem is most of our communication with the Holy Spirit is about our agenda, not His. Rick Warren in Purpose Driven Life, the very fierce sentence, essentially says, your life is not about you. If you could capture that, just stop reading the book, you're done. Your life is not about you. But you see, our sin nature drives our selfishness. We live as if everything in life is about us. God, watch over me. 
God, keep me healthy. God, give me financial resources. God, open that door for me. Lord, help my house to sell. God, please protect me. God, give me that promotion. Give me safe travel. Lord, help my team today in the big game. Sometimes my prayers are all about me. Never mentioning anyone else, or when I do mention someone else, it's usually a close family member or friend where if God actually helped them, he'd be helping me. It's kind of, you know, spiritualizing my desire. I'm not praying for me, God, but boy, if you would just make my children millionaires, that sure would help them. I'm guessing I'm not alone. I believe that if we were all really honest this morning, I believe that those of us who do pray, which is a smaller percentage than those who say they pray, that when we truly pray, most of our prayers are pretty selfish. The first century Jewish Christians prayed differently. When we read about their prayers, their prayers were selfless. They connected through two key human needs, touch and hunger. Their prayers were selfless. They made sure the person they prayed for was physically touched. A basic human need. We all need to be touched. They laid hands on them and they prayed for them. Over and over in the scriptures, they laid hands on them and then they prayed for them. Second, they made sure their hearts were desperate for God by depriving themselves of food, a basic human need. They fasted and they prayed for other people. God, I want to have a hunger for that person's needs and desires like I do for food. They fasted and they prayed. They modeled selflessness. They fasted to prepare their hearts and laid their hands on others to extend their hearts. It's a powerful combo of selfless prayer. People praying who are burdened for other people. We want to become a praying church. A selfless church that makes sacrifices to give other people their needs before our wants. A church that meets the spiritual needs of others before we worry about the physical needs of ourselves. A church desperate for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. A church where prayer is the first response, not the last resort. In other words, a church that authentically represents the Jesus we claim to follow. And a church that depends on him for everything. Extended hands. Throughout the Bible, they they talked a lot about extending hands to other people. There were times in the book of Acts when they laid hands on the people they prayed for. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? They did it because they saw Jesus doing it. And they had this weird concept that if Jesus did it, we should do it. And everything they did was about doing what Jesus had shown them to do. Jesus extended his hands to other people. He knew that touch was a basic human need. As a society, we're very guarded about touching. Between our fears of inappropriate touching and our germophobia and things like COVID, we've become disconnected from each other. But we were wired to touch and be touched. There's healing in the human touch. 
We express deep emotions through touch that can't be exposed and expressed in any other way. Sometimes someone just reaching down and patting your hand says more than anything else they could say. Our hunger for touch is as strong as our hunger for food. Our skin is intensely sensitive to physical touch. But please hear me before we go any farther. Every comment I make about physical touch is about appropriate physical touching. I wish I didn't even have to say it. Touch is a God-given need that we never outgrow. It can indicate empathy, approval, affirmation, love, friendship. Touch is a transmission from one person to another, and it always, always communicates something. Our hands are an extension of our heart. When our hearts and hands work together, we can touch another person's heart. We can reach out and touch someone deeply. And in the process, we're touched equally. Both are benefited. As adults, we continue to have a need to be touched. It affects us biochemically and physiologically. Brainwave activity is increased. Awareness is increased. Insulin needs are reduced in diabetics. Hormone levels are increased. Sleep patterns are improved. Touch is a physical necessity and beneficial to our sense of well-being. Simply put, humans thrive on the connection with one another through touch. And Jesus knew it. He put it in us. He put that desire in us. Matthew 19, 13. Then the children were brought to him that he may lay hands on them and pray. Why did they do it? They saw Jesus doing it. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. There's power in the touch. Matthew 8, 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and he says, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus extended his hands to touch a leper. A leper. No one touched a leper. No one. Jesus did. The great crowd probably stepped away and was aghast that a rabbi had touched an unholy, unclean person. No one touches a leper. They're unclean. They make you unclean. More importantly, a rabbi, a man of God, should never touch anything that's not holy. And then there's Jesus reaching out and touching a leper. That leper had probably not been touched for years. Can you imagine that? To never feel the touch of someone else. No handshake, no pat on the back, no hug, no one putting their arm around you. We were created to be touched and to be touched by God and to touch other people. Jesus didn't have to touch the leper to heal him. Could have just spoken. Could have just nodded. Could have just thought about it. Healing would have happened. Yet Jesus often went out of his way to touch those no one would touch. 
to connect with those no one wanted to connect with, to touch those who most needed to feel his touch. When Jesus outstretched his hand, he's outstretching his heart. And his followers did the same. They saw Jesus did it, so they did it. They extended their hands to other people to provide comfort and support, to allow someone to feel the presence of another person in the battle with them. To symbolize a touch from God as a sign of confirmation on what God is doing. As a show of unity of those adopted into God's family. Frequently we read they laid hands on them and prayed for them. Look at Acts chapter 9. In this story, Jesus has sent Ananias to pray for Saul. That's a big thing all by itself. Saul had a conversion experience on his way to Damascus. He'd been persecuting Christians. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was spiritually blind, and now because of his experience with Jesus, he's now physically blind as well. He's on the road to Damascus. He's on a mission to kill Christians. One of the men that Paul was on his way to go kill was Ananias. He lived in Damascus. Now, Damascus is a city in Syria. If you look at this map, just to sort of give you an idea, um, Jerusalem's down at the bottom, and then Jericho, and you go up the road along the Jordan River, you go around the Sea of Galilee, through Capernaum, which was Jesus' hometown in ministry. You go all the way up there through the mountains, and you end up in Syria, Damascus. Paul is on his way up there because he heard that Christians had fled north to Damascus. He's going to go chase them down. In a vision, God told Ananias to find Saul of Tarsus. Not too hard. Everybody knew where Saul was. Everybody knew who Saul was. I suspect Ananias knew he was coming to Damascus. Probably heard rumors like the sheriff heard of a gunslinger coming. He's on his way up here. Everybody get ready. Everybody hide. Ananias is likely trying to get away. And then God says, no, no, no. Go find him and talk to him. Yeah, go ahead. Go find him. Instead of telling Ananias how to avoid Saul, God tells him to go to Saul and lay hands on him. Not just go look at him from a distance. Get close enough to lay your hands on him. No doubt, when Saul could clearly see, the first person he would see was Ananias. I mean, picture this. Here's what God's saying. Look, there's a blind man. I made him blind for you. You're safe until he can open his eyes. By the way, go pray for him, lay your hands on him, and let him open his eyes. He's been looking for you, and he will see you. I'm sure he wasn't really thrilled with this idea. But please hear this. God often calls us in obedience out of our comfort zone. Like we've talked about for months, the incredible things of God lay outside of your comfort zone. That's why they're God things and not you things. Ananias was about to see the miraculous because he was in that place where he had to depend on God. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brothers, Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. Saul, the persecutor. 
Initially spiritually blind, now a believer. Ananias witnessed what was probably the greatest, most amazing conversion in the first century. He was obedient, yet he was uncomfortable. He was scared, but now he's seen the miraculous of God. He will forever learn to keep stretching his comfort zone. One thing I've not mentioned is that God increases and expands your comfort zone with every experience. You see, the more you trust God and step into that zone, the more you know he's going to show up. And then what seemed like a really big step when you were early in your walk is now just almost nothing because you know God's going to be there. And so our comfort zone is constantly expanding and God's always got new places to take us. God continually redefines what's comfortable for us as we grow, much like a weightlifter. Maturing believers are always expanding their comfort zone. What made us uncomfortable early in our walk now is routine, unless we decide to shrink back, unless we decide to stop pushing our comfort zone, which point a lot of things become uncomfortable. Ananias laid hands on Saul. He's participating in the work God is doing. He's not doing anything. There's nothing miraculous about Ananias. God's working through him. God could have just given Saul his sight back. There's something about the laying on of hands. There's something about God doing his work through each other to one another. Something about combining physical touch and prayer that connects two parties to each other, to God and to what God is doing. You see, the work of Jesus was flowing through Ananias to Saul. Prayer wasn't about Ananias. About what Jesus was going to do for Saul. Ananias laying his hands on Saul was symbolically representing a touch from God. By reaching out and touching him, he's letting Saul know that what's happening here is not of him, it's of God. The gift of healing flowed from God's heart on the throne in heaven through the heart and hands of Ananias, eventually to the heart of Saul. Prayer accompanied by a physical touch touches the heart, takes our attention away from our selfish prayers and and puts the attention on someone else. And in the process, both parties are changed and they're drawn into a deeper relationship and a deeper understanding of what God is doing in that moment. But sometimes in the early church, praying for others, even with hands extended, seemed to lack something. Sometimes it wasn't enough. Sometimes the heart of the one who was praying had to become more desperate to see God work. They had to become more desperate for God to intervene. They needed to physically feel their desperation in order to feel what God was doing in the moment. Let me see if you can pick it up in these scriptures. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying on sackcloth in the ground. Daniel, so I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they put their trust. Acts 13 too, when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. 
So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Nehemiah, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Luke 2, 3. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. Jesus speaking to the disciples about their failure to cast out a demon. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. They fasted and they prayed. They fasted and they laid hands on people. There's no such thing as a fast without prayer. Fast without prayer is just going hungry, dieting, not accomplishing anything. While fasting is not necessary for salvation, it's essential as one of the parts of our Christian walk of faith. And it's highly recommended throughout all of Scripture. Jesus expects us to fast. Matthew 6, 17. But when you fast, not if, not if you decide to, not should the occasion arise, not should you run out of food, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fasting will help you have a more intimate relationship with Christ because it aligns your desires faster than anything else. It'll help you to overcome sin, bad habits. It'll help you to open your eyes to the things that are displeasing to God in your life. Fasting and prayer is a time to separate yourself from your regular patterns and from the things of this world and get closer to God. Fasting restrains our physical pleasure, but it enhances our spiritual pleasure. Fasting reduces the influence of self-will and invites the Holy Spirit to do more work in us. Fasting is abstaining from food with a spiritual goal in mind. Not a means to an end, a means to understand the process. I love this thought. Fasting at its root is a physical hunger that connects us to our spiritual homesickness for God. You see, when we're fasting, when we start to develop that hunger, there's something, I gotta have food, I gotta have it no matter what. And it reminds us that our desire for Christ should be that much and greater. In the first century, they give up their desires, they gave up their desire for food to remind themselves that all they really needed is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in the lives of people around them. How did they know to do that? How did the disciples know that they should fast. They saw Jesus do it. They do what Jesus did. You see, they're following Jesus. He does it, we're going to do it. They lived so simply. If Jesus did it, I'm going to do it. They didn't debate it. They didn't argue it. They didn't work their way around it. They didn't try to manipulate it. He did it, we're doing it. I wish we could live like that. You know, for years I saw people wear the WWJD bracelets and I thought, I wish I'd thought of that. 
because I would have changed it. Nothing wrong with WWJD bracelets. I just think it falls short. A lot of people ask themselves, what would Jesus do? And then don't do it. Yeah, that's what he would do, but I'm not doing that. Question really is, or the statement that we should ask ourselves or tell ourselves is do what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. Don't commit to thinking about it. Don't commit to wondering what it would be. Don't ask yourself, what could he possibly do? Do what he did. Knowing what he would do and doing it are two very different things. You see, doing what Jesus did connects us to action, not just thought. Jesus fasted. He fasted for 40 days in the desert. Satan came to tempt him. Satan thought he could win because Jesus had to be so worn down. What he didn't realize was fasting made Jesus spiritually strong. Jesus not only fasted, he expected his followers would too. Matthew 6. And when you fast, don't look gloomy. Don't disfigure your faces. They've received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. Look at this passage for a minute. Do you see what's repeated in this passage? When we studied scripture, when I taught how to read the Bible, I said, look for things that repeat. When you fast. When you fast. It's repeated. Not if, not perhaps, not a few of you who decide to. When you fast. Jesus expected his followers to fast and he repeated it for them. You see what else is repeated? Reward. Promise, your father will reward you. Anytime you see a promise like that, do whatever it says before that. If the answer is your father will reward you, I don't care what it says in scripture before that, do it. Your father will reward you. So why don't we? Why, why don't we fast? Why, why is this such a seemingly lost discipline in the church? We don't fast or we're not doing a great job of being obedient. Jesus said to keep it between us and God, so maybe we're all fasting and nobody knows it. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're all fasting and we're just all so spiritual that we don't ever talk about it. And all of us are anointing our heads in oil today and we haven't eaten for a day. I don't know. But I suspect, however, right now, you're a little convicted in this area. I know I am. Maybe this is the first time you've really heard anybody teach on it. I've been thinking a lot about why we don't, well, why I don't fast as much as I should. Prayed about it, thought about it. I've spent a lot of time in self-exploration over the years. I've thought about this topic a lot. I've mulled it over and over. I've tried to understand why this discipline is so hard for me. And after years of exploration, I have an answer now. I know why I don't fast as much as I should. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like to fast. I like food, I need food. I want food and I'm good at finding food. <laughs> fasting reveals my lack of discipline. It's through fasting that I understand how strong my desire can be for food. I'm convicted because my drive for Jesus doesn't seem to match or come close to that sometimes. And I guess that's kind of the point. Let me boil this down for us. How easy is it for you to go through a day and not find time for Jesus? 
How easy is it for you to go through a day and not find time for food? You see, Christ followers fast in order to develop selfless hearts. When we fast, we reveal a need. We create a void. God can use that void to do a work in our hearts. Every hunger pain draws us back towards God and reminds us that we need him more. If you're spiritually stuck in an area of your life, I challenge you to fast and pray. And then ask the elders or others to come alongside you and lay hands on you and pray. There's something about fasting that leads to spiritual breakthroughs. Through fasting, we surrender to God. Pastor Jim Cimbala said it this way, I have discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He can't seem to resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Fasting, it seems, moves our heart. And it seems to move the heart of God to a place of connection and action. Fasting helps us to recognize our desperation for God. It was commonplace in the first church and seemingly absent in today's church. You see, the first century church was very selfless. Today's church is often selfish. Look at the early church in Antioch. At a critical time in human history, they demonstrated selflessness. They fasted to prepare their hearts, and they laid their hands on others to extend their hearts. Acts chapter 12. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The gospel message is moving. They've been to Jerusalem. It increased and multiplied. Thousands came to know Christ. Barnabas and Saul have returned from Jerusalem. They've gone up to Antioch, which is on the coast. They completed their service in Jerusalem. They came with John, whose other name was Mark. The early Christ followers began to have success. King Herod had just died. They were beginning to see revival. The Holy Spirit was working through them and around them. The gospel was not only increasing, it was multiplying. Barnabas and Saul had played a key role. They're returning from Jerusalem. They're telling the church at Antioch how great the events were. They completed their service. Their stories were amazing. Mission well done, Paul and Barnabas. They were at a critical point in the mission. Do you know what keeps people from seeing the great things of God? They get comfortable with seeing the good things of God. And they think that's all there is. Resting when the mission's just starting. Living in desperate times, but not being desperate for God. My biggest concern for our church is that we would get comfortable. That we'd be the church that starts out out hot but becomes lukewarm. You see, growing a church is easy. Everyone's on board. Everybody's inviting. Everybody's serving. It's new. They're doing whatever it takes. But at some point, you realize you're not starting a church anymore. You've become one. And now there's work to be done. You're no longer building Many are just maintaining their building. Start to guard what you've done. Keeping what you've built becomes more important than the reason you built it. The church was become about you and whether you're comfortable or not. Rather than those we know who come through the door and are going to hell if we don't help God's mission. 
I never want anybody to have to write what Jesus told John to write about the church at Sardis. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, and not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's your Savior speaking to believers, followers. Every day, the pastors and the elders put this church up on the altar. Remnant is a living sacrifice. God can sacrifice us for the mission. Maintaining this church is not our mission. Surrendering remnant to the Holy Spirit to be used for the mission is our mission. Whatever he wants to do. It's not just for you and me, it's for the church. Anything, anywhere, anytime, any cost. So the question becomes, how do you know if you're lukewarm? How do you know if you're lukewarm? You have to ask yourself this question. When it comes to the mission of God, am I a consumer or a contributor? When it comes to the mission of God, am I a consumer or am I a contributor? Let's just take our approach to this church as an example. When you come to church as a consumer, you're more concerned about how we do church, what the church can do for you, and what you can get from the church. When you come to church as a contributor, you're more concerned about being the church, reaching other people, putting your heart into the mission, focus on what you can contribute and sacrifice collectively for the mission to move forward. As a consumer, church fits in when it's convenient. As a contributor, church fits in because it's necessary. People tell me they'll miss church because of football games or parades or the fair or their kids' sports. And they go, we'll just watch online. You'll, you understand, we're just gonna watch online. No, I don't understand. No, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't get it. Not at all. Building's open. Worship's happening. Jesus is being taught. What other things do you have to do? A parade? Football game, sleep in. Do you know how many Sundays I want to sleep in, by the way? Just saying. All right. I know we're all out of, t out of town at times. I know that we all get sick at times. I know that some don't come to church because they can watch it at their convenience on the internet. I get it. Sort of like we watch Sports Center or the news. I still can't believe that church is closed during COVID. It makes no sense to me. And you know, I believe doing so contradicts scripture. But because the American church closed for almost a year, the damage to the gospel is gonna take years to have an effect. You can't do church online. Not now, not during COVID, not ever. Church can't be done online. If you're watching us online and that's how you connect with us, get down here. I talk long enough. You can leave home when I start and still catch the end. Let me tell you what you can't do online. You can't welcome guests. 
You can't see the hurt in someone's eyes and connect with compassion to their eyes and their heart. You can't tell that somebody's just a little bit off and maybe just needs a touch from God or a word of encouragement. You can't do that online. You can't lift your voice with other people and praise Jesus collectively like we did this morning. You can't take communion with your church family. You can't feel the presence and movement of the Holy Spirit when he's in the room. You can't experience the community of being with people you love and your church family. You can't serve other people. You can't be used by God to minister to other people. You can't reach out and touch anybody unless you want to send them an instant message. You can't reach out and touch anyone and nobody can reach out and touch you. It's pathetic to call that church when all this is available, are you out of your minds? I don't know why the church, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But there's something even greater that you'll miss by being at home. Let's look at the first church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves. Do you see the list? They devoted themselves. They made these things more important than anything else. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to breaking bread together. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves. They made a choice to make something important, to invest their time and energy. That's what devotion is. I'm going to invest what I have into this. Here's what you'll never get at home. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. Awe came upon every soul. You can't experience that online. I want Remnant to live in that place. They lived in awe and wonder. When was the last time you felt the awe and wonder of God? Awe came upon every soul. Every person in the room experienced it. They saw wonders and signs. The scriptures say all who were there together. All who believed were together. Let that sink in for a minute. All who believed prioritized being there. They were not only there in person, they were there spiritually. They were there connected. They weren't just there hanging out. They were devoted to the most important thing. And because of that, they all together experienced the awe of God. I know that's not likely to happen at a football game. Or sleeping in or watching us online. Do you know why the early church saw and experienced the great things of God? Because they never got comfortable with the good things of God. They sacrificed and devoted themselves. Even when things were going good, they said, we still have more to give. We can't stop. God can do more. He's going to do more. Yes, some cool things have happened, but we can't get comfortable with good. God wants great. They sacrificed and devoted themselves. They, they positioned themselves to be desperate for God's very best. 
They were together in church and they were together in the experience of the awe of God. I know how hard it is to work all week and devote yourself to this place on the weekend. I get it. I'm bivocational. I know the pressure. I understand the pressures and I understand the evil one who's constantly trying to keep all of us out of this room. He'll do anything to keep you from experiencing the awe of God. That's why you have to devote yourself to being here. I know there are competing interests out there. I've pulled my kids out of football games that got delayed at halftime because we had to go to church. And I told the coach, my kids are not going to miss church. I don't care what the score is. I don't care how badly you need them. We're going to church. And they freaked out because at halftime, me and my kids got in the car and went to church on Saturday night. Surrender the decision of where you're to be to Christ. Before you set your agenda for the week, pray and ask God if that's where he wants you and your family to be. First church devoted themselves to being together and they experienced the awe of God. And once that happened, there was nowhere else to be. You see, once you come here and you become part of the compassion, you become part of the movement of God, where else are you going to be? They were having success in Jerusalem. They came back to tell the church at Antioch how great things were going. Look at how they responded. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, uh, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Remember I tell you that lists are important in the Bible? Every time you see a list, slow down and pay attention to it. Look at who's assembled. Manon, a lifelong friend of Herod. Herod, the great, sort of. Herod killed John the Baptist. Herod had his head served on a platter. Herod killed everybody. And Saul, Saul's been killing Christians for years. Only God could assemble such a group of misfits and then transform their lives. I know because it's on our sign. It does it here. We're all a bunch of misfits. But we're being transformed. And the response of a transformed heart is worship. They were celebrating not what they had done, but what God had done in Jerusalem. They were worshiping the Lord and enjoying the experiences of what God had done, thanking him for his presence, thanking him for using them. There were stories to tell. They were all coming back together to build each other up. It's a pep rally for God at Antioch. But these people lived present forward. They were in the present, but they were being pulled by the anchor of what's in the future. The mission's not over, it's just begun. Yeah, they've had some success, but God's not done yet. So they worshiped and fasted. People on God's size mission are desperate for God's power. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. They've only been to Jerusalem. This message isn't done yet. It's too much work to do. They didn't celebrate what God had done that was good. They fasted and prayed and said, what's next? They experienced God working through them and they realized they need more of him. Once you have God working through you, you don't want anything else. Do that again, God. Send me where you have to go. I need to feel that again. They were desperate for God. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. At a critical moment, 
hot or lukewarm, they fasted and prayed. It would have been easy to get comfortable. They could have prided up and said, look at what we did down in Jerusalem. While waiting and praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, get ready, get packed, you're going again. Holy Spirit gave them direction. To be called by God is a burden. Paul and Barnabas are feeling the weight of the call. To be called by God is a burden. You feel the weight of it. You know you're unworthy. You know you need God. To have your leader called away as a church is a burden. You realize your need for God. And they were in unity. They all felt and shared that burden together. When the Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, I'm going to send them out, the whole church probably went, no. We need them here. After fasting and praying, though, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Note the order. They fasted to prepare their hearts. They laid hands to extend their hearts. Once all their hearts were in unity, once they were a praying people and a fasting people, then they symbolically collected all of their love, their desires, their desperations, their hopes, and they extended their hands to Barnabas and Saul, Paul. You see, you may be called out, but you never go on a mission of God alone. We're there with you, supporting you in prayer, they said. Feel your hands on your backs. The burden of the mission is great, but we got it with you. You're going to leave, but we're going to keep praying. They laid their hands on them, affirming and agreeing what God had done, not elevating the person. But just that God had chosen that person for this mission. Years ago when I was ordained, the church laid hands on me. It took me back to a baseball game when I was 12 years old. I was a pretty good pitcher. Not great, good. Things weren't going well this day. It was a big game. I was nervous. Probably should have been pulled, but I had a great coach, Mr. Stockdale. He came out to the mound, looked at me. I was shaking like a leaf. I'd thrown several balls. I'd walked like two batters. I, Please pull me out. In my misery. He had me turn around. I remember he put his shoes, you know, in my misery. He turned me around. He said, he had this big arm. He put it on my shoulder. I felt it. When his arm touched me, it was like, I have your back. I want you to know that I'm in this with you. Then he whispered to me, the ball's in your hand, but it's not your ball. Everyone here wants to play with it. This is a game. You don't win or lose it on your own. He had me turn around and look at the other eight people on my team. He said, you see Johnny over there in right field? He's just one pitch away from making an incredible catch that will make his life incredible. You see Jimmy at second base? All he wants to do is get his uniform dirty. But as long as you're holding on to the ball, he can't do that. You see, those other eight people are actually hoping that the batter will hit it. That's why they're out there. They want to use their skills and talents just like you do. Whatever you can't do, they're going to do for you. That's why you're on a team and not standing out here by yourself. So I want you to stop trying to throw strikes. I want you to stop trying to get batters out. I want you to throw balls they can hit and let your team play the game. Stop trying to do this by yourself. You need to trust your team to help you do your best and let them take care of the rest. Then he took his arm off my shoulder and he walked away from all the weight of the situation was lifted. 
I knew that Coach Stockdale was with me, even if he wasn't actually with me. I knew my team would back me up. That night, years ago, when the church laid hands on me, it was as if I could feel the weight of Jesus, his arm on my shoulder, his touch, telling me how he was in this with me, reminding me that it was going to be okay. We're all on a mission together, and we're all trying to do our best and let God do the rest. I'm by no means a great pastor, but I have a great coach. And he put me on an amazing team. You see, my role, the ball's in my hand. It's to follow Jesus. That's the ball. Lead and challenge all of us to do the same. When you laid hands on me, you extended your hearts to all God had in mind. Every time I feel unworthy or inadequate, I remember that touch because I am unworthy and inadequate. You see, God had the church lay hands on me not only to remind me of my inadequacy, but to keep me there and remind me that we're all a team. We're all a team. We're all playing our part. The ball's been given to us, but it's not ours to own. It's not ours to hoard. Not ours to hold on to. Our performance doesn't even matter. What we forget is the game's already won. What's happening is greater than how we perform. You see, the game is so much bigger than us. The only thing that matters is our relationship with the coach. With Jesus. He's the reason we're on the field. Imagine knowing he's right there, but we never speak to him. Can you imagine that? Me neither. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you not only chose to save us, but you wanted a relationship with us. You wanted us to take time out of our day to pray. At times when we're desperate to fast and connect with that desperation. You wanted us to reach out and touch each other and lay hands on each other and share burdens together. You wanted us to encourage one another. You wanted us to do life together. So God, help us to be obedient and surrender. Help us to change what you're leading us to change. Help us to realize that we're all on your team. The ball's not ours, it's yours. We can't fail unless we fail to develop a deep relationship with you. So God, help all of us to move closer to you. Help all of us to commit ourselves to prayer. Commit ourselves to fasting. Commit ourselves to connecting with others through the laying on of hands and through touch. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for this incredible church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 